Hello and welcome to the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Alistair Litchen, Head of Education at the NSS, and today we're bringing you some bonus content from our recent conference, Secularism 2019. One of our volunteers, Emma Park, got some behind-the-scenes interviews with speakers. Originally, we were going to include this with our conference review episode, but there were some technical problems, so I'm glad we can bring it to you today. All the speeches from the conference are in the process of being uploaded to our YouTube channel, links in the show notes. And uh, these conversations were a bit more wide-ranging than the topic of the conference. Uh, We were happy to have such a diverse crowd of speakers and expertise at the conference, but the views expressed in these conversations are those of the participants and not necessarily the NSS. I hope you'll find them interesting and that they bring a different angle. Enjoy. Hello, um, this is Emma Park and I'm speaking to Nick Cohen about his talk for the National Secular Society Conference. Nick, you you talked about political extremism and you said we should perhaps watch out um, for that as well as religious extremism. How do you think the two relate to each other? Um, Well, uh, as I said in my talk, oppression is oppression. Prejudice is prejudice. Sometimes it comes uh, in a rabbi's hat, in a dog collar, in an imam's cloak. Other times it doesn't. It doesn't make it better or worse, whether it's religious or not. And I was just trying to point out that both the left and the right in Britain are acting, in a sense, like militant religious movements. All militant religious movements hate rival religions or accuse people who don't support them of doing the bidding of rival religious movements. And you see, uh, with anti-Semitism on the left uh, and with Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bigotry on the right, the same thing from movements that are largely secular but are equally threatening to our liberties and to values uh, that um, uh, secularists ought to hold dear, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of conscience, the right to dissent. Um, I I notice this particularly on the left, where people who speak out against Corbyn are treated as virtual lepers. They're all corrupt. They're corrupted in some way by money, by Murdoch, by Zionism, very tellingly. And I was just simply saying that secularists who... In a way, we know how to fight. Not we always win. Uh, We know how to fight religious bigotry. We know how to fight uh, religions that demand special treatment or demand the power over others. We've got to be equally conscious. There's no moral reason why we should not be as conscious of extremist secular movements that do the same. Is the problem at the moment in the UK that there is a lack of leadership from the liberal centre against the extremism we see, both the religious and the political extremism on the left and the right? Uh, I'm an old git now, and never in my lifetime have I seen such a lack of political leadership. It is extraordinary. There are plenty of good politicians. They're all on the back benches. Um, There is no uh, coherent... Uh, liberal voice. By liberal, I mean liberal in the broadest terms. It could be liberal conservative, it could be liberal very left-wing. That's not the point. The point is that there, 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 is no, there are no political leaders, and that matters enormously. Because yeah, everyone talks, oh, well, with the web in modern society, politicians aren't important. I think if you want to show why politicians matter, come to modern Britain. When there aren't people going on air day in, day out, shooting down conspiracy theories, shooting down uh, irrationalism, 
shooting down outright lies and mobilising support for themselves, uh, for, for their cause, then you, you have a country like ours, which is just um, in a state of permanent crisis and permanent neuroticism as well. Yeah, we're on the verge. We're always on the verge of a nervous breakdown. But like our fate is never to quite have it. It's never going to be over. It just seems to be going on and on, year in, year out. And, and how did this come about? Because you mentioned in your talk that we used to think of ourselves as a moderate, secular, tolerant people, yeah. and that was indeed perhaps true even up to as late as 2015. And then something changed, and now all the major, the dominant voices in the media and in politics seem to be very dogmatic and extreme. Um, what, what I said in my talk was this. I mean, I was asked this question and, you know, the answer could fill a book yeah. and probably it wouldn't then be right. Um, what I said is, yes, at the individual level, you've got to let yourself go a bit. You can't go around thinking, well, I'm a Tory, so I'm going to be very reluctant to criticise people on the right. I guess I want to attack the left. Or I'm a left-wing, I'll only attack right-wingers. You've got to get rid of those old labels and you've got to say, I will stand up for my values and I'll fight my fights regardless of where the person I'm fighting against comes from. Because so they, they all count on, they all count on complicity from their own side. And they go to great lengths to encourage group loyalty. To say, oh no, you speak out and you're a Blairite, you're a centrist, you're a Zionite, you're a factual, you know what I mean? So let go of all of that. And don't be frightened by all of that. That is just, on the individual level, I think that is the most important thing. And is that something which is equally important if you're in a religious group, would you say? Yeah. So how, how might that work to, to get rid of this well, idea mean, of tribalism? Uh, um, uh, there are people who do it. There are Muslims who do it. There are liberal Muslims who speak out. Uh, at some personal risk, I should say. Uh, liberal Christians, but the same thing applies. The same thing applies. And secularists should not be remotely frightened of immediately offering their support to them. That's crucial. Religious moderates deserve secular support. You shouldn't say, oh, all Muslims are extremists, or all Christians believe in some sky god. So avoiding generalisations. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Generalisations are, are the basis of identity politics, and breaking down identity politics is the road to freedom. So there seems to be a real issue, which is that Social media encourages the formation of bubbles, it encourages echo chambers. But how are we as secularists, um, as liberal-minded, tolerant people who want to use reason and debate, how are we going to avoid falling into the same trap as the extremists? Well, I mean, we do fall into it sometimes. Let's not be over prissy about this. No, you do it for the same thing. You use critical intelligence. You're not frightened of having arguments. You don't say, oh, he's from the National Sex Society, I'll, I'll, watch what, I'll bite my lip and right. bite my tongue and watch what I say. So we have to be critical within our own group Always. as well as... Always, absolutely. Yeah. And critical, self-critical. That's where it all comes from. You've got to be able to sit down every now and again, go through your beliefs and think, do these stand up? Final question, Nick. What would you say secularists ought to do um, in the immediate future to tackle these extremisms, religious and political, which are affecting our society at the moment? What do we need to do on a personal level? Well, personal, I sort of done. Um, political, um, absolutely form alliances. Yeah. Because what I was saying before about people with moderate religious beliefs, be, try to win. Nick Cohen, thank you very much.
This is Emma Park talking to Izzy Posen. Um, Izzy, you're the president of the Bristol University Free Speech Society, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Emma. And so you were just saying to me you're finding this atmosphere at the National Secular Society Conference refreshing. In what way is it refreshing? Being here and, and, and hearing people having honest discussions about the societal problems we're facing coming from extremists, both uh, religious extremists, secular extremists, extremists on the right, extremists on the left. I find it really refreshing because these discussions are so, so rare on campus. In fact, uh, my society, the Free Speech Society, has tried, on campus, the Bristol Free Speech Society has tried to organize events like this and consistently we are being shut down. Just last month, uh, we invited a woman called Emma Fox from the Henry Jackson Society. She wrote a report called Extremism on Campus, um, where she lists, she just, she takes the government's definition of extremism and just lists all the extremist events that happened on university campuses in the year 2017, 2018. And she found that on Bristol University, there were nine extremist events in that period. We invited her to speak about it, and the event was shut down on charge that was Islamophobic because it raised issues with Islamic extremism. We were called fascists, we were called Islamophobic. Far, light, far, left, um, far left student groups protested against us, threatened us, and the event was eventually shut down. And the discourse is so narrow on campus. As I, as I said before we switched on the mic, every single speaker here today would be labeled as an Islamophobe on campus, despite the fact that probably half of the speakers so far have been Muslim themselves. And who are the people who are leading this movement of labeling everyone um, an Islamophobe who dares to talk about these issues? It's an alliance of Islamists and, and, and far leftists. And by Islamists, I don't mean Muslims. I mean Islamists who have a political ideology based out of imposing um, Islamic values on, on, on Britain. Is that a sort of unholy alliance because you'd have thought these people would have quite different interests? They unite in the hatred for the, re for the West. They hate liberalism, they hate the West, they hate liberalism because they believe that society can't be just, you know, free for all and because we, we're not taking into account the inherent class oppressions, right? So you can't have a free society, you have to have a dictatorship of the proletariat, or you have to have a authoritarian society that will sort out these inequalities. So they believe that the West, American imperialism, Britain, are inherently, uh, inherently oppressive, um, and Islamists share this view, and I think that's where they unite. And, and yes, you're right, it's very, very astonishing alliance, because Islamists are usually homophobic, um, are usually sexist, um, and, and a very, we would consider them, them right-wing in many, in especially in societal and religious issues, and leftists are meant to be progressive. Do you think there's, the universities ought to be doing more to support students who, um, like yourselves, want to promote free speech? Absolutely, absolutely. Universities have to make it very clear that the victims in the cases where there's protests is not the protesters. They're not the victims because they're offended. The victims are the students who want to have discussion. So when they, for example, we're familiar with the concept of victim blaming when you, when, you, when, you, when you ask the victim to do all the work to fend off the, the victimizer. When universities ask student societies to provide security for their events, they are sending the message, you're the problem here, you want to protect yourself, get your own security, pay for it. Instead, if universities want to send the opposite message, they should do, first of all, they should make sure there's security at events. They should punish, they should be strict with students who disrupt events. It's fine to protest, protest is part of, part of free speech. But to intimidate, to invade events and stop and silence discussion universities should be far more strict in clamping down on these offenders. Do you think that universities are just weak or do you think that they are actively hostile themselves to free speech? 
I don't think they're inherently hostile. I think universities have been going through a big change over the last decade, um, the inclusivity um, and tolerance change. On the one hand, they want to protect free speech, but on the other hand, they don't want to come across as cold to these concerns. And there's also a narrative um, there's also a narrative that says uh, it's loosely framed as uh, you let a minority define their own oppression, which means that if somebody from a minority group says they're oppressed, this is gospel truth, you can't question it. Um, and first of all, you don't realize that they might have ulterior motives, some of them. Secondly, you ignore the minority within the minority, right? So at every event that we do, and we have people saying that we're Islamophobic, we'll always have Muslims secretly messaging us saying, I'm scared to speak out because I'm a minority within the Muslim community, but I support you, please do it. Sure. So uh, I think, so going back to your question, I think universities, there's a lot of pressure in universities from minority groups that want to seem inclusive, they want to see toler seem tolerant, but by doing that, they are they're giving in to uh, harmful narratives and suppressing free speech. So for example, the university wanted us, when we hosted that speaker that was uh, talking about the problems of Islamism, they wanted us to, as a compromise, they said, you know what, why don't you host uh, an opposing speaker and make it a debate between someone who says there is extremism and someone who says there isn't. And we said, we're all for debate, but having that requirement sends the message that somebody who's criticizing Islamism is Islamophobic and is hateful. Yeah. We strongly re reject that message. We're going to make sure that we have the talk, her alone speaking, to show this isn't a hateful talk. This is talking about problems that should concern us all. So I imagine that must require a lot of courage in many cases. I mean, your own background, you grew up in a very strict Hasidic community. Is that right? How did you escape from that, if you like? So I, uh, when I talk about my background, I say I grew up in a cult. Yeah. Um, and I've looked up the definitions of a cult and uh, my community fits every single description uh, of that. Um, we, we, spoke a, we lived in London, but spoke a different language because I didn't want us to speak English. I couldn't speak English until the age of 18. We could only read books published by people in the community. Um, we had our own schools in which we didn't learn anything secular, so not science, maths. We only learned the Talmud and, and the Bible. And you're um, now studying philosophy and physics, you said? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so how I left. So it started by by being curious, by questioning, by asking questions, by looking beyond the boundaries. And it was a very slow journey. It took me from the age of thirteen until twenty. It took me seven years of questioning. Um, eventually, I started teaching myself English, and I started uh, uh, sneaking into libraries and hiding books under my mattress. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, once I read more widely, I, I of course saw that the worldview that my community held was incompatible with, with the actual facts of the universe, um, and I laughed. And, and I, I want to say that my free speech activism is very, very much influenced by, by my journey. I know the dangers of dogmatism. I know the dangers of living in a community that is an echo chamber, that, you, that you're not allowed to ask questions, that you have to have dogmas. And what are those dangers, would you say? The danger is that you lose your way. So society ha has critics that whenever it goes off, it listens to its critics that tell it, you're going off, you're doing something wrong. So you have a civil rights movement, you have, you have women standing up for women's rights. There'll be the critics in society who act like the secular version of prophets who will tell off the society you're going wrong. If you silence dissent, if you silence those critics, then who is going to make sure that, you, that you're not veering off? How will you... How are you going to have your checks and balances that you're not becoming more and more extremist? 
Because extremists are usually not static. Extremism is something that is always becoming more and more extreme unless something pulls it back. And I guess that's what we see with social media, the little bubbles of different um, extremist groups. They only listen to each other and... Um, therefore, there's, there's no one to challenge them within that group. They all keep themselves very closed off. How, how do we avoid things happening, like with your experience growing up in a very closed community, how do we avoid those religious communities perpetuating and isolating themselves from the mainstream of society? Sadly, there are no easy answers to this question. Um, religious, these religious communities are extremely insulated and are almost impenetrable. They are extremely resistant to any government interference. The minutest things are massive, massive fights. I remember when, when some of my community wanted to bring in psychology for kids, and it was met with extreme, extreme resistance because they saw psychology as, as undermining the pure notion of free will and, and the evil inclination and the good inclination. They saw psychology as reducing it to just things in the brain, which it really does. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so they were extremely resistant. How do we... I don't know. The, the government is working. The government is trying to, to introduce RSE education in schools. They're trying to, to monitor illegal schools. In my community, um, in the community of my upbringing, to this very moment, I know of at least 30 illegal schools. And by illegal, I don't mean faith schools. I mean schools that are under the radar, where the teachers are not qualified, where kids are not taught anything about the world. Um, and, and the government needs to do a better job at clamping down on them and, and working with the community to change things from the inside. Izzy Puzin, thank you very much. So this is Emma Park speaking to Pragna Patel, um, who is the director of Southern Black Sisters. Pregnant, could you just very quickly explain what you're doing in Southall Black Sisters? Well, um, Southall Black Sisters yeah. is 40 years old. It's a black uh, secular feminist organization that was founded in 1979. I set up the Advocacy Campaigning Center in 1981 with the view to helping very many black minority women who had no voice in our communities and who were largely invisible, um, neglected both by community institutions and state institutions. And it, we felt that there was very much a need to raise issues not just of racism and uh, prejudice towards minorities, but also the kind of ways in which women were experiencing inequality and hatred within communities. So our aim has always been to challenge women's oppression and racial oppression at one and the same time. Now that was 40 um, years ago. What's it like now for women in minority um, religious groups? It's a very contradictory picture. On the one hand, as a result of amazing feminist struggles led by not just South or Black Sisters, but other Asian and Black feminists um, around the country, we've some we've had some achieved some real gains. We've had the issue of domestic violence, gender-based violence, forced marriage, honor-based violence, FGM on the political agenda. We've got laws and statutory policies addressing these kinds of issues. Whereas back in the 70s and early 80s, nobody wanted to know. And if you went to social services with issues of forced marriage, the response was one of indifference. Um, what I characterize as cultural relativism and um, uh, fueled by the idea that you don't interfere in people's communities. So could you give us some examples of what 
type of problems do, let, let's say in, in religious communities, mm. do women face from fundamentalists today? Well, I would say that minority communities are not religious communities. They are right. minority communities. They have very different diverse backgrounds and traditions and cultures. Um, the idea of religious communities is an idea that's kind of imposed by state and self-defined by community leaders. But in terms of the rise of religious fundamentalism, the ways in which um, demands made by fundamentalists or, or, or ultra-conservatives, for example, separate faith schools, for example, uh, the right to be uh, fam to have family disputes um, resolved in religious arbitration systems rather than the formal legal system, the need for dress codes to be recognized, particularly for women, uh, the right to have gen gender segregated public events. These are just some ways in which particularly women have been impacted because they go against the kind of equality uh, principle uh, in relation to women's access to equal, so uh, women equal access to services, equal access to the law, equal access to education. So these are just some ways in which the rise of fundamentalism in all religions has impacted, particularly on Black and minority women's rights. There is a sense that policymakers, politicians, sometimes feel. That, as though they have to treat um, mm. minority communities mm. with kid gloves mm. on, on this basis of cultural relativism, that they're mm. worried about interfering mm. with communities' culture. How can we challenge um, community leaders who use that sort of it's my culture mm. excuse to support their fundamentalist views? First of all, one has to challenge who is speaking for whom. Uh, do they, are they really speaking on behalf of communities? Community leaderships are not democratically elected leaderships. They are self-styled leaders who take on the mantle of leaderships without anyone having invested that in them. Um, they often speak um, about their own interests when they claim to speak on behalf of communities rather than the interests of those within it. They're often looking after the interests of those who have power and and, and how they can retain power rather than supporting those who are the most vulnerable and marginalized within minority communities. So the first thing one has to do is challenge their claim to leadership. And, and, and how can we do that? Power. We have to challenge whether they're speaking on everybody. We have to make sure that there are other voices within communities that are not heard are, are heard, particularly women, sexual minorities, those that leaderships don't tend to speak on behalf of. That's really, really important. Of course, our organization has always challenged community leaderships because they've never spoken on behalf of women. They've never spoken on behalf of gay and lesbian communities. They've never spoken on behalf of even religious minorities within a particular religion. It's very important that we challenge those leaderships. They don't like it, and we do face a backlash when we do so, but that hasn't stopped us because otherwise what we're doing is shoring up um, unaccountable, patriarchal, undemocratic power. Now, you were talking in your um, speech earlier today about the clash between different rights, mm. and that's the theme that's come up throughout this mm. conference, um, the, the human the right to freedom of belief on the one hand and the right to freedom of expression on the other mm. hand. And you made the interesting point that the right not to be offended doesn't exist. Mm. How does that 
fit in? How are we going to balance these these two rights of freedom of expression on the one hand and freedom of religion or belief on the other hand? Well, freedom of expression is much larger, and freedom of expression includes freedom of religion or belief, as far as I'm concerned. Belief means the right to believe in whatever you want, including non-religious beliefs, or to not not or believe not anything. To yet. believe anything or to be an atheist, or to be to speak outside of religion, to be secularist. So um, for me, the issue is that freedom of expression is um, central to any thriving democracy. If we don't have freedom of expression, we cannot have democracy. But that involves respecting the right for those who want to believe. But when those beliefs begin to be imposed, on others and often imposed through violence and intimidation, then they are harming others. So what we have to look at is when people claim the right to religious freedom, is whether though that claim is, is also about restricting other rights, including the right to equality, the right to live, um, the right to autonomy, the right to have uh, freedom of beliefs. Pragna Patel, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Emma Park speaking with Rachel Laser, who is the president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and she's going to be giving the keynote speech for Secularism 2019 a bit later this afternoon. Rachel, how is religious freedom being threatened or being exploited in America today? Well, there's really more of a political movement than a religious movement that are calling themselves a religious movement. They're what we call the religious right. There are a lot of leading evangelical Christians, not all evangelical Christians, who are using religious freedom, or I would say misusing religious freedom, in order to advance a regressive social agenda that keeps existing power structures in place as to religion, as to race, as to gender, et cetera. And so today, religious freedom in America is more about the right to discriminate or a license to discriminate than it is about the right to be able to practice your religious observances. Let's say you're a religious minority and you need those protections. So it's changed from being more of a shield, that's what we tend to think of as what religious freedom should be about, a shield for all of us to be able to be who we are and practice our religion of so long as we don't harm others, to a sword, to cause harm to others and to discriminate. And is this illustrated by the current um, laws against abortion in Alabama and Missouri and places like that? It is fundamentally, even if it's not explicitly so. So these laws don't have explicit sort of religion purposes in them that they contain, but we know that there's a religious right effort to have our entire country live by their, what they would call, again, religious tenets. Many would call them political tenets. And so, yes, Abortion is a church-state separation issue in America, and what's going on with these abortion bans has a lot to do with the special privileges right now that evangelical Christians, white evangelical Christians, are seeking and unfortunately largely obtaining. 
Why do you think the atmosphere in America has changed to support such a regressive conservative approach? I think there's a lot of fear. Starting in 2014 in America, we were no longer a majority white Christian nation. And the demographics continue to change by 2046 or so. They say that we're no longer going to be a majority white country. We're increasingly religiously diverse. There are over 2,000 religions across our shores. And the original, while we were never a Christian nation by our government, and in fact, we were very deliberately founded to be a nation for freedom of conscience for all, that there was in the cultural power structures an edifice of white Protestant dominance throughout our culture. And so now that that's changing pretty dramatically as our country continues to evolve and and we actually obtain our ideals around diversity in America, there's a lot of fear and a lot of clinging to old power structures. And how the people who are, who are opposed to the white um, Christian um, rights, right-wing movement, how are they opposing it? Are they successfully, effectively resisting this um, encroachment of conservatism or are they struggling? struggling. <laughs> I would say we're struggling right now and I think that you know America has a very complex relationship to religion. You know, we're a non-religious country by our state, and yet we have an incredibly religious population. I guess the history of America really starts with um, religious movements, though, doesn't it? Does. It? it does. With, yeah, religious movements and fleeing religious persecution, but then really establishing quite oppressive religious systems as well at the same time until we, you know, in Mass in the Massachusetts colony, there was a lot of religious persecution. In Virginia, it was the most persecuted crime of all to not attend Church of England services on Sunday until the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom passed. So we have a complex relationship, of course, in our founding documents and our, our first freedom is religious freedom, but there's been this sort of assignment of non-religiosity to the religious freedom movement these days that makes a lot of uh, people fearful about speaking out because even progressives, even allies in the pro-choice community or the pro-LGBTQ community because what they, what they fear is we've got issues enough with our issue alone and now if we're going to add in that this is really a religious freedom issue, we're going to bring along the air that we're anti-religion on top of our own existing problems. That's very strange in a way if you think about America as the leader of the free world is the moniker it's often, it uses for itself and yet at the same time it seems to be oppressing these sorts of freedoms. Yeah, you know, we... Look, here's what I believe, that countries are very lucky if they have ideals that are great. And America has wonderful ideals that unfortunately we haven't always been able to live up to when it comes to racism and equality, when it comes to religious freedom, when it comes to women's equality and freedom, etc. And so I'm just very glad that we've got the ideals in place and actually codified in our founding papers and documents. And then we, we just need to hold our country accountable. And in fact, as we continue to grow over the years, every time we've sort of increased rights for different populations, we've never looked back. It, it almost reminds me of The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. When, when I first read that, I thought that sounds a little almost hysterical, that surely that could never happen in a mod modern Western country. But it seems that in some ways we're, we're getting closer to that. The only thing that I could say is it's sort of like that horrible moment when a 
pimple comes to a head and it's ready to burst. And at least it's sort of at that point. It feels like that's what's happening in America where, you know, there has been this sort of festering fear that's turns into hatred and bigotry, and it's sort of at a peak, but it's very uh, exposed and visible right now, and therefore very easy to counter and to point to, and hopefully, ultimately, to overcome. So how is your society going to go about bursting the pimple of hatred? (laughs) What a lovely metaphor, huh? (laughs) We're going to build a national movement. That's what I mean. We're going to continue to sue in the courts, and we're going to continue to work in state legislatures and in Congress, federal Congress as well. But at the same time, we feel we need to build a national movement and state networks across all the states in America so that we can make this issue more visible. We want to connect the dots between religious freedom and so many other issues that people care about, but they haven't realized how interconnected they are, like LGBTQ equality and reproductive freedom. And we want to make sure that we're reaching the next generation of leaders, because it's the younger people in America who are going to protect our core values and who bring an unparalleled energy to issues. And we're going to start making a very deliberate effort to reach into those communities to build sustainable relationships and to connect the dots between those issues they care about and church-state separation. Do you think you'll be making connections with similar organizations in other countries, such as the UK or elsewhere in Europe? I would, I want to, and I'd love to, and this has been a really exciting experience for me, even listening to the part of the conference that I have so far. I've seen so many connections between the way we talk and the way you all talk and the way we see the problems and the way you all see the problems and the way we see the solutions and the way you all are defining the solutions. Can you give us an example? Yeah. Um, Well, even when Sarah Khan talked about how fighting extremism isn't just about the sort of defensive work, it's about uplifting and advancing democracy and the values of pluralism and human rights and diversity, we need to attach positive values and messages to our work and not just the resistance is also super important, but part of our messaging needs to inspire and needs to be positive. To me, there's nothing more inspiring than fighting for true freedom for all. And when this is at the essence of it, it feels like we have vast potential to grow our movement. Rachel Eza, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Emma Park talking to Yasmin Raymond. Um, Yasmin is a council member of the NSS Council, and she was giving a talk today about religious orthodoxy and religious freedom. Yasmin, could you tell us how your own background has influenced your decision to become part of the NSS Council? Um, so I'm um, I'm of South Asian descent, um, half Indian, half Pakistani, and there is a rich heritage of secular movements. In um, the Indian subcontinent, the um, independence movements were largely secular movements. There was obviously the splinter and you had the creation of Pakistan um, along religious lines, but it was created for religious minorities. Um, And um, if you look at kind of the the founding documents, there is a secular basis. India is a secular constitution, although um, currently um, I think secularism is a far cry away from the Modi government and, and kind of their views. So um, certainly that rich heritage um, in terms of my my national ethnic um, identity, although I was born and brought up in the UK. But I also grew up in a secular household where religion and religious practice was a private thing. There was no expectation that the state would 
um, endorse a particular religious view or support a religious view, as long as you have the ability to um, pray at a mosque or um, fast during Ramadan, that you, you were respected, that you're, you know, but there wasn't a demand from the state for any special privileges. Do you think that's changing today? I think it's completely changed. I think where, as a society, we're now held hostage by various religious factions who were constantly vying for status of greatest victimhood. Um, and that certainly across the Abrahamic faiths, you'll see that with, um, you know, I quoted Giles Fraser in um, an article by Giles Fraser in my speech where he said Christians were the most persecuted uh, group in, on earth at the moment. Muslims will say the same about themselves. You'll hear Jewish you know, groups saying ab about them. And it's not to say they don't suffer persecution, but there shouldn't be a hierarchy. And irrespective of whether you have a faith or you don't have a faith, you should, um, you should have equal access to all rights and, um, and protections as kind of framed within the Universal Declaration. And how are some religious um, leaders or speakers using the discourse of victimhood to promote their own agendas? I think with the Islamist groups, um, you certainly see these constant, um, this constant pumping out of the last three decades of um, Muslims suffer most in, in terms of employment, Muslims suffer most when it comes to education, Muslims suffer most when it comes to um, stop and search, which actually isn't true. It's African-Caribbean communities that have stopped and searched more disproportionately than South Asians. They talk about the counter-terrorism agenda and how that negatively impacts on them. A lot, some of that is true. There is discrimination. There is structural inequality. But to claim victimhood over and above everybody else without standing alongside those other groups who are also suffering um, prejudice and discrimination, I think, is... Um, is disingenuous. You're a Muslim yourself. How do you see um, Islam being compatible with secularism in your own life? I don't think there's an issue with it. I honestly don't. The definition of secularism that I've always hung on to is a definition that is on the available on the NSS website. It's a definition coined by um, my friend Gita Segel, and it's um, I want to be able to practice my faith. But I also want to be able to challenge my faith or any other when it comes to abuses of human rights, um, whether that's in terms of misogyny or racism or, or um, homophobia, I want to be able to stand up and say that. And I really do think a secular state protects those of religion and who, who have a religion and those who do not. That's not to say that I think there is a model of a secular state that I would say that's the model that I would like to have. I don't think we've got there yet. I really don't. Do you think that the Abrahamic religions, since we're talking about them, do you think they're all compatible with human rights? I think they are. Um, I, I think um, there's a, which have, you know, there's diversity of views. There's an absolute diversity of views within those religions and across those religions about various things. Um, Islam has had, I mean, it's, you know, for centuries, Islam has, um, Islamic scholars have debated scripture and various interpretations and drawn different views about what the life of the prophet um, can teach us. 
And I think what we're losing with the literalist and fundamentalist interpretations of Islam is that ability to critique and question, which is part of our heritage. And if you can critique and question, you can move forward and you can say, in that context, that may have worked, but actually society has moved on. And it's about how do we take these broader principles and apply them to um, the world that we live in now. And that's not to lose the essence of the faith, but just to recognize that in seeking knowledge, which the Quran talks about really openly, that we learn and we grow. What the fundamentalists want to do, and the literalist interpreters want to do, is to stop us seeking knowledge. One of the things that frustrates me, but also really pains me, is in trying to address the issues around um, radicalization within Muslim communities. The government have looked for liberal Muslims and liberal Muslim leaders who will say what they want them to say and have fallen foul of, um, well, let's look at the actual scripture. If you look at any religious text, which was written a very, very long time ago, it will endorse things that we as society wouldn't condone now, slavery. Um, beating women. Beating women, you, I mean, homophobia, I mean, the, you know, the list goes on. Um, so I think it's really dangerous and really stupid for the government to look for, to, tr to try and become, um, through their engagement with religious leaders, um, to try and present an authentic, true version of Islam when is Islam is so many different things to so many different people, as will Judaism be, as will Christianity be. There are various shades within it. How can schools around the country support um this, this idea of tolerance and um, opposing um, an extremist education? I'd like to see an end to faith schools. Um, I think, and I say that as somebody who's been to faith schools through my education, I, th I think faith, some faith schools do a fantastic job in terms of academic achievement. I think it's a historical accident that religious institutions filled a vacuum when the state wasn't providing education to educate our children, but we've moved on since then. I really do firmly believe it's the state's duty to provide education for all of its children and to own the curriculum. I think relig religion should be taught as an academic subject. How can we then argue against parents who say that um, requiring children to all be taught the same um, curriculum, say, on religion and sex education, is interfering with their right to bring up the, their children their own way. Nobody's stopping parents bringing up children their own way. Um, parents will have different views about children's bedtime, children's diets, um, what children can and can't wear. Um, you Parents still exercise that right. And it's interesting that parents become very vocal about lack of consultation when it comes to uh, religious education or it comes to relationships and sex education, as I was talking. They never demand that of how our children are taught maths or how they're taught, um, or science, I was going to say, but actually science they do with the creationists. Minority parents, very few of them stand up and challenge the way history is taught from a very Eurocentric position, and the histories of their countries of origin aren't taught. Where's the debate around that? So parents are picking and choosing what they want to stand up against. I think the religious lobby are playing on people's vulnerabilities and people's fears. There's a, I mean, we saw that in the Brexit debate with the, you know, the Muslim hordes coming across the borders into Europe. Um, so the, there's a lot of that. I think it's old-fashioned racism and prejudice. Prejudice, n no community is, is void of 
prejudice and discrimination. It just plays out differently. And one final question. What do you think we as individuals and as a society and, say, organisations like the National Secular Society can do to ensure that our country doesn't get overwhelmed by extremists of different varieties? I think we do what we're doing at the moment is we're calling it out, we're holding events like today, but I think we, we all as individuals need to be lobbying our, our political leaders at every level and actually saying this is not acceptable. There comes a point when we have to say no and just say enough. Yasmin Raymond, thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Thanks again to Emma Park and all our speakers and delegates who contributed. Before I go, I want to take a moment to plug our next major event, the Bradlaugh Lecture 2019. The lecture, named after our founder, is held on the first Saturday of September at the Manchester Art Gallery, and there's a lot of symbolism there. Firstly, it coincides roughly with the NSS's anniversary. Secondly, it recognises our historic links to Manchester and the city's historic tradition of radical, free-thinking politics. The gallery features a magnificent portrait of our founder, Charles Bradlaugh MP, speaking at the bar of the House of Commons where he was forbidden from entering. You can find out the whole history of this event on our website. And it symbolises that sometimes the radical voices we most need to hear are those which are most silenced by reactionary religious politics. It's right and timely that this year's lecture will be delivered by Andrew Moffat. Andrew is a teacher and advocate for inclusive education. He developed a programme of study called No Outsiders, which promotes inclusive education in primary schools and has unfortunately been the target of abuse and conspiracy theories spread by reactionary religious groups who oppose to LGBT inclusion. Tickets for this lecture are £15, or as a third off for members, and that includes a drinks reception. All the details are on our website and will be in the show notes. Before I go, I just want to say that if you'd like to support this podcast, you can leave us a five-star review everywhere you can, or you can join or donate to the National Secular Society at secularism.org.uk. Take a stand for freedom, fairness and human rights by adding your voice to the call for a secular democracy. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>